Welcome to Dramatic Pause, being recorded on the ancestral and unceded territory of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish nations at the Fire Hall Arts Centre in what is now downtown Vancouver. My name is Donna Spencer, artistic producer at the Fire Hall and the host for today's podcast. And I'm delighted to have as my guest today, Ashley Corcoran. Ashley is the artistic director of the Arts Club Theatre and has been stick-handling the theatre through these pandemic times. Ashley, welcome. It's great to have you on Dramatic Pause today. Well, thanks for inviting me. It's great to participate. (laughs) (laughs) So what a time we're in, hey? Um, I I don't know how you're managing to juggle everything during this difficult time, but uh, there seems to be lots of great things coming out of the Arts Club, so you've been really coming up with some in- innovative ideas to stay in touch with your audiences and to, uh, to support the artists in the community. So I'm curious about that, but I think the first thing we'll get into is talking about how you ended up finding yourself as an artistic director of the biggest company in Western Canada and how fabulous that must be for you, but also challenging. Um, and I'm guessing that at some point in your life, you went, I have to be in the theater. And I'm curious about what that was that made you decide that. Well, I grew up in White Rock, um, so just south of Vancouver. Um, and I, I was actually in music in high school. I played the trumpet. Um, not very well, but I played the trumpet. <laughs> And I uh, also took piano lessons and did that sort of thing. Um, I went to Semiamu Secondary, which has a great music program. So uh, I was part of a great band. I wasn't great, but I was part of a great band. Um, and I, my whole high school experience revolved around music. I, I took chemistry at 12 and math 12 and at night school. I took social studies 10 by correspondence uh, so that I could fill my days with music and then still do all the academic classes that I wanted to do. Um, and so I didn't do drama, but I loved going to see plays. And whenever I saw a play, I like felt in the pit of my stomach, like this is what I'm going to do. Um, whether that was uh, um, like a pantomime, White Rock is well known for its pantomimes. Uh, or when I was 13, I went to the Queen Elizabeth Theatre and saw Les Mis. And I remember, I don't know why, I don't know why this would be the case, but I remember at the end of the performance wanting to stay in the auditorium longer. And we were there so long that I saw them like strike like the scrim and everything. And I saw the back cement walls of the Queenie, which I've now been in. And I know that they're the walls that I saw. Um, And so at the time I remember being like, wow, this magical thing I just saw was created in this kind of cement box. And how did they make the words float above the actors? Like I didn't know what a scrim was or how did they make it look like they were walking because of the revolve? I didn't understand that. Um, So so pretty, pretty early on as a young teenager, I was totally smitten by it, but I didn't have any hands on experience. I didn't do it at school. But when it came time to apply for university, I decided I wanted to go to Queens um, out east, mostly because uh, you could do a double major in the arts and the sciences. And I wasn't sure which path I wanted to take because I loved both so much. I I thought maybe maybe I would become a doctor or pediatrician. Um, But then at the last minute, instead of putting biology and English on my application, I put English and drama. And then my biology teacher cried. Uh, and I just decided to just study drama and um, people were very surprised um, by this decision that like I knew inside I really wanted, but 
people in my life didn't necessarily know was um, something that I really, really wanted. And what happened to the trumpet? Um, well, it's just just behind me in a closet here. Um, <laughs> at the beginning of the pandemic, I got a mute so I could play it in my condo and not bug people. Um, I still play occasionally, but again, like, you know, it was actually like being in band taught me a lot about teamwork and teamwork and artistry because I played third or fourth trumpet in our stage band and second trumpet in concert band. I was kind of a supporter um, for those listeners that maybe don't know like first trumpet is the high notes second trumpet in a jazz band or stage band is the person who does the improvisation and the solos and then third and fourth trumpet is a sort of like you know the harmony and the support um, and that's what my chops could handle but I had amazing amazing music teachers who taught me a lot about how you work together or how you you know what 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 practice like can do, what rehearsal can do towards the goal of artistic excellence, um, how you depend upon each other. Um, and so they, though I wasn't, it wasn't involved in, in drama in high school, my music teachers, David Prosnick and Kevin Lee taught me like things about art that I think about every day. Anyways, and I, did, oh, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, and when you uh, click drama or when you yeah. <laughs> identify drama, I, I'm presuming you're family would have been somewhat surprised. Yes, yeah, uh, yeah. And I'm wondering whether you knew at that point what part of drama you wanted to be involved in or whether you were really just basically going, I'm going in and I'm going to find out what's going on. Yeah, I, I, my family was very surprised. My family also is the kind of family that's like, you can do whatever you want, but you have to pay for it yourself. So I always knew I was going to pay for post-secondary education myself. Um, and so there, there was no pressure from them to choose a particular field or not, because it was whatever you want, but you've got to make it happen. Um, I think they were surprised. Uh, and eventually they got on board, but they were a little bit scared. I think uh, I had no idea what any of the jobs were. And so when I was in grade 12 on a band trip in Idaho at the University of Idaho, I picked up a, a textbook on stage management and so I was like, well, this seems like something I can do. I'm organized, you know, <laughs> like, and so I thought that I was going to be a stage manager. And so in my first year, first year of university, I, it wasn't clicking also. It was all paper then, Donna, no. That's right. As yeah. soon as I said that, I went, no, no people didn't click then. No, no. <laughs> you actually wrote things. You actually wrote things, yeah. <laughs> so I, um, I... I ended up being very, very lucky and ended up getting a scholarship from UBC to go study at a castle that Queens owns. It's all like very, I'm very jealous of my, my youthful self. Um, and so I studied my first year in England, uh, which was amazing because I got to see tons of theater. Like our drama class would go see theater in London every Wednesday. And then on the weekend, we'd go somewhere else in Britain to see something. So it was a very, very privileged and fortunate experience. Uh, and that here, I met my friend Brad, who's now the director of communications at Soul Pepper, and he told me he wanted to direct. And I was like, oh, I think I want to be a stage manager. Like, let's put on a show together. And so we did Terrence Radigan's Harlequinade. Uh, and because, yeah, like the internet was still pretty new then. That, that was 1997, 1998, the year I was in England. Uh, my parents printed every single email that I sent to them. Uh, so I have this I found it about 10 years ago. I have this great diary. It's like a, a parentally sanitized diary, but a diary of this year in England. And there's this very short email that I wrote that's like, dear mom and dad, um, rehearsals for Harlequinade are going great. Brad's great. 
the cast is great. Stage managing is great. Um, but I think I want some more creative control. I think I want to be a director, but I'm only 18. Lots of time to figure that out. Love you. Bye. <laughs> That's fabulous. Yeah. And I don't like, I don't remember writing that email, but I can totally imagine myself feeling that way. Like definitely can, can, I don't specifically remember feeling that way, but I can imagine feeling that way. Um, and so by the time I then, I then reapplied to Queens uh, and um, had to apply as an upper year student. And my dad and I had so many fights that summer because I had an opportunity, excuse me, to go to UBC still on the scholarship. And my dad wanted me to make the financially smart choice, which I would give the same advice to a child. Uh, and I just really wanted to go to Queens and had like my heart set on it, even though I knew it was going to um, be more difficult for me financially. Um, yes, but I got in. And so I went to Queens and I remember my first class was a production class and everyone in that class knew each other and they'd all been doing musicals all through high school. And I felt I was had just turned 19 and I felt so far behind. And now I think like how silly that is too, to feel that you're like behind at 19 um, and in the end, I loved drama at Queens so much, and I did not love English at Queens. I found the English classes, like you had to learn what the professors were telling you. Like in my Shakespeare class, my old, you know, old white professor, I'm sure he was great, but I remember yeah. him telling us what Desdemona was thinking. This is what she's thinking. And you've got to remember that for the, for the, um, pop quiz that will be coming up next week. Did pop quizzes every week in that Shakespeare class that would be like how much did Prince Hal spend on bread <laughs> I was like I don't know if that's what we should be talking about when we're talking that's about interesting. <laughs> yeah and then and then I would like I walk across old style. old style and walk across the yeah. green and I remember my my f younger female professor uh, in my drama class we were also looking at Othello and she said well what do you guys think Desdemona is thinking and so then I was I decided at that point to not do a double major in English and drama and just do a full, be able to take more classes in drama. Uh, and my parents were very stressed about that, about, you know, what will your employment opportunities be? And I was how like, are you going to make a how living? Are you going to make a living? And I was like, well, how is I going to make a living with an English degree? Like, if I know I want to work in theater, I should just be taking a full degree in theater. Um, and so I did. And what was so great about about Queen's drama is that you, it's a liberal arts education, so it's not a conservatory. You can really kind of, um, at least I found that I could make the path my own. And because I didn't, I, I knew I was interested in directing and I knew directors needed to work with everyone. And also because I didn't, hadn't had a lot of theater experience, I wanted to take everything. So I took some acting classes, playwriting classes, admin classes, theory classes, you know, history classes. Um, and so Queens gave me a little taste of a bunch of different things. Um, well, it sounds like a fabulous uh, little journey there. Yeah. And you sound very, now I can understand completely why uh, you uh, are taking on or took on this big theater company because you, you're really, really a brave soul. I mean, <laughs> when you're 19, you do think you are 18, 19. I remember thinking I knew everything yeah. And, yeah. and that it, I could overcome whatever, but uh, it, it's a total challenge when you're, first, first of all, living far away from your family. They don't necessarily agree with what your choices yeah. are because they don't think you can pay the rent 
will ever be able to pay the rent yeah. if you get into the arts. But wow, that's pretty amazing. <laughs> so that you were brave enough to walk into a room knowing nothing about theater. That reminds me of an audition I did at the Banff Center when I just started to get into theater. I had no idea what was going uh, on either. Yeah, well, that, and that's I, the best, just jumping in. It, it, exactly. I would say exactly. that, like, I, I remember I did go to, I was in Ontario on a, another band trip, and my mom was there as a chaperone, and we had gone to Queens, and we met the head of the department, and he... Before, so this is before I applied and he kept on telling my mom, don't worry, people who go to our, go through our program end up being CEOs of business or journalists or, and my mom was like, well, I think if Ashley studies with you, she's going to end up working in theater. So my parents were both like worried and also like, we know that she, when she makes a decision about something, she, you know, does it. So yeah, so that, that was that, that's how I kind of figured out I wanted to direct. I then, um, I worked at Tarragon for a couple of seasons as their admin assistant and apprentice stage manager. Uh, they made that kind of opportunity for me so I could get into a- Were you there when Mallory was there? Yeah, Mallory is, yeah. was, is one of my best yes. friends and, and mom. She's like my theater mom. I, I lived with Mallory. Uh, Mallory gave, Mallory changed my life in many, Mallory many ways. Gilbert was yeah. the, just for everybody, the yeah. Mallory Gilbert was the general manager of Tarragon for many, many, many years. Fabulous woman. So Mallory, so after Queens, I applied for this job. Um, it was $500 a week. And I remember her saying like, do you think you'll, is that enough money? You might not be able to survive. And I, and the summer between my undergrad in Queens, I had worked at a theater in Vermont making $100 a week. So I was like, yes, $500 a week. Sounds great. And I, I had done um I had done a white paper on Tarragon when I was at school. I like I like idolized her without knowing who she was. Idolized the Tarragon. My first day was actually supposed to be September 11th, 2001. So we we postponed it a couple of days. The first day I was actually there. We walked around the whole building. She introduced me to everyone. I was so happy. And then we sat down in our tiny tiny shared office. Uh, and she said, well, I'm terrible at delegating, so I don't really know what you're going to be doing while you're here. You're on a grant, so you're going to have to figure it out for yourself. And uh, I discovered the room we called the cave was full of boxes and boxes and boxes of clipped out ads, um, reviews, posters, just like all the history of Canadian theater from the Tarragon, just not not take like not archived not taken care of and so that was how I spent the first couple of months there was figuring out an archiving system and you know reading reading all these old reviews reading like learning about Canadian theater history and really learning about new play development so, yeah. when you were in I'm just when you were in England uh, when you were in London um, do you remember uh, a particular play or a particular theater event that just went okay uh, this has shaken me to the core or this has taken me to a joyful place or one that you will never, ever forget. Yeah, like, I saw um, Complicite's uh, production of The Chairs, Ionesco's The Chairs. And so at that point I had seen like the pantomime and and like the the other high school's musical The Boyfriend and Les Mis, you know, like I'd seen some professional theater, but like big, you know, big musicals. I had never seen anything like Complicite's work. I'd never seen anything like Ionesco. Uh, and uh, Geraldine McEwen was one of the, act the, the actress and um, oh, the actor's name was just escaping me, but amazing perform performances. And the design was incredible, like the sound and the lighting and the set all worked together in a way that I had never seen. And so, yeah, it was that was the show. I was, it was probably like October of my first year of university. And that introduced me to this whole other world of theater that I didn't really knew had existed before. 
Did you feel at that point that you had a lot of catching up to do? Did that ever concern you that you had never seen this and yet you were studying theater um, or knew this style? Like that, did that ever? That year I was less worried about it. Like I, like, I mean, I, I had seen shows at the Arts Club and Vancouver Playhouse. So I guess I should say I had never seen work, but that work was pretty astonishing. Like it was just kind of like the uh, yeah. Simon McBurney, his, his work is just kind of next level. I, I didn't have that feeling of like, oh my gosh, I'm not going to be able to catch up until second year when I walked into that production class and, and it was more about doing theater that I was like, how do you do it? You know? Um, but yeah, I, you know, you just jump in. Um, I, I was going to say like fast forwarding, like trying to, I'm trying to answer your question of like, how did you decide to become an artistic director when it like, takes forever to get there? But I, well, but, but you decided to be a, a director and that's sort of the next, the next, jump or the next choice is really to start to be an artistic director which is quite different from just being a I don't mean just being yeah, a director, yeah. but from directing yeah so I after those couple of years at, at the tarragon I then decided that I wanted more specifics about directing that I didn't like how do you actually talk to actors I I had assisted Daryl Cloran who's a great colleague now a couple of times and we'd both write down our notes uh watching a scene and then at lunchtime he'd be so generous and go through our like my notes and his notes together and our notes were always like very similar but 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 he would say like how are you going to say that to an actor <laughs> right like what you're writing down how are you actually going to say that to an actor so I wanted to learn more tools more have more of a toolkit for directing and so I ended up um getting to go back again because of another scholarship to London uh I was a chevening scholar and I did my master's in um at Goldsmiths College in directing. And that year I was there for 51 weeks and I saw 127 plays in the 51 weeks that I was there. So the, the, the MA was very useful. I directed um, uh, Edward Albee's The Play About the Baby at the Battersea Art Center. You know, I, I learned a lot, but also I learned so much by seeing so much theater that year, just like every, every free ticket I could get my hand on or five pound ticket I could get my hand on, I went to go see everything and then I would go home and I would write everything I liked what I didn't understand what I didn't like I had this like huge journal of my experiencing theater that year and again well, that's two shows a, that's two shows a week yeah it's kind of like I mean, I mean I don't know about you but whenever I go to London and I cannot wait to go to London or oh my gosh me too I, I was thinking about that yesterday <laughs> it's like jammed into yeah. three shows a day if I totally can't. I know I know now and I'm like oh that's only two shows a week that's not that much but yeah now now I'm like I'm there I'm there for four days so that means that I have nine slots so like am I gonna see nine shows but yeah anyway so that that year was really amazing and I then, I returned back to Canada. I assisted, directed a show at the Tarragon. And then I came back here to BC for, I think it was six or maybe it was eight weeks. And I had $377 in my bank account at that point. And uh, a master's degree in directing, which, you know, had taught me a lot. But as we know, like, you don't get hired because you have a master's degree in directing, right? <laughs> it's not like, it's, a you know, the path in the arts, it's not a straight ladder. It's its own kind of curvy journey. And so I got a job at the Semiamu Center uh, at Cotton Ginny and a different job at Northern Reflections. It was over Christmas. So I had two part-time jobs in the mall, local mall, um, covering their, their busy Christmas time. <laughs> and uh, cried all the time, like just, cried and cried and cried about you know I just had this incredible year incredible life like let's be honest and now I was like at this point where I was like 
how do I actually get to direct now that I have this toolkit? What, how, what's going to be the next step? Um, and I had done a master's because I had thought that um, an MFA is terminatory and an MA leads to a PhD. And I had thought maybe eventually I would do a PhD. And so my mom said, you know, give it five years and try to direct. And if you don't, if it doesn't work out, then you'd go to your PhD. And my parents were like so supportive and amazing, you know. Um, did you go to the White Rock players and ask them if you could do a, a, a pantomime? I did I'm it. just curious. I should have. Did? I did it. So <laughs> I, I would say that like, it, like every year between under, on my undergrad years, I did write like every theater company in Vancouver and be like, can I volunteer? Can I do anything? And, you know, it was, it was like, difficult. It was hard to break in. Um, I, cause I wasn't going to school here. I didn't have the connections here. So I, yeah. yeah. Um, but so, so that, at the end of those six weeks, I moved back to Toronto. I rented the like additional, like, it was basically like the pantry off of a kitchen in a house with um, three of my girlfriends. They all had bedrooms. I had this weird pantry. So my rent was like $400 a week or $450 a week or, or a, a month. Um, and I got a temp job uh, and I, I worked for office team, but I temped uh, at Inco Mining Corporation three days a week, making $18 an hour. And so those $18 an hour times eight times three paid for my life. So I only had to work three days a week. And the other four days a week, I started Theater Smash, which was my little independent theater company. And I started it with Sarah Bauman, who was one of my roommates at the time and um, someone I'd gone to Queens with. And that is how I became an artistic director was that I knew that no one was going to hire me to direct. So I had to make um, my own opportunities and make up opportunities for other people my age that were in the same um, same uh, position. And so for Sarah and I, it was really important that we paid people um, right from the beginning. So we we started working on the company in January 2005. But we didn't do our first show until September 2006 because in that time period, we incorporated, we became we're like we became a not for profit. We got our charitable status. And then Sarah and I, until I ended up running it with a woman named um, Stacy Norton for the last uh, eight or 10 years of the existence, we, the two of us would raise between 60 and $100,000 a year so that we could hire artists and do about a show a year. And so all of a sudden I was learning about being an artistic director because it wasn't just about directing the show, but about what is your vision? What's your mandate? How, what's, what's board governance like? How do you, how do you um, create a community? <laughs> and so, uh, all those, uh, all, I mean, they, all those things are so important. And I think people don't often think of that. I mean, uh, I always say, and I'm sure you probably do as well, that to all anyone that comes in and says they want to be a director or an artistic director, I said, well, sometimes you, you just have to do it. Totally. And, and, and then it doesn't mean you have to create a theater company to last forever. Yes. But you kind of have to initiate and show people that you can do it. Totally. So. I, I agree. Uh, and, and in doing it, then I also realized that I really liked the programming aspects of it. I really liked the like, what kinds of, we'd had um, educational programs that were sponsored by TD Bank that were, you know, we brought in students on school buses that we paid for and did student matinees and did workshops for them. And it was all covered by a corporate sponsorship. Like I learned how you could harness resources to create opportunities for both artists and youth in um, like it, 
I didn't know that was going to be something that I really loved. And then in doing it, I realized that the kinds of impacts you could have as an artistic director were maybe in some ways longer lasting than as a stage director. And I like I love stage directing, but those long those larger community impacts became very attractive to me. And so that's when I started thinking, oh, maybe I want to be an artistic director of like a theater theater, right? Like, uh, well, I, I think that's a really good place to segue a bit mm -hmm. into, I mean, I know you went on and then you ran, was it Lighthouse Theater? Sorry. No, yeah. I, I, I like, so basically then I ended up running the Thousand Islands Playhouse in Gannon Opry right, for five years. Sorry. And then to answer your first question, like, how do you end up here? Like Bill Millard, I never thought Bill Millard would retire. Who ever thought Bill Millard would retire? And when I found out that he had, I was just about to hop in the shower and I remember like shampooing my hair and thinking, oh my gosh, like that would be like winning the lotto, like getting to run that gorgeous theater in that gorgeous city where my family all still lives, getting to move home, that would be like winning the lotto. And so that is how it happened. I went through like the long process of applying and learned everything I could about this theater community and that that theater in particular. And then very, very, very luckily got the job. Um, and so moved here the end of 2017 uh, and was the incoming artistic director for a few months and then became the artistic director in February, 2018. So just over three years ago. And, but to go back, what I was gonna try to segue into before I misnamed the company you yeah. were yeah. leading, uh, was gonna, I was gonna talk about some of the programs that you have come up with during COVID because really when the pandemic hit, I think all of us were like, wow what do we do now oh well this might go on for a couple of months yeah. and then it just yeah. kept going on and on and it was kind of hard to figure out okay what should we what should we do but you you guys have done some really innovative things so uh what how how did you get to the place of deciding what you were going to do um well I agree with you that right away I think we were all in shock across the country let alone our sector um I think we did think this is gonna last a couple of weeks, a couple of months. We'll be back doing shows by the summer, we were hoping. Um, uh, I think we had a lot of fear off, off at, at the beginning. Um, and so once we kind of got ourselves out of that, I think our first step we started to do, like many theater companies, um, a live from, we called it live from home, our version of it, and where we paid artists to do, you know, two minute videos of the art they were creating at their home. And that was our first, artistic offering. I'd say backing up from that for myself, it's this, you kind of mentioned it earlier, but it's the, it's the triangle of artists, audience, and um, staff that we're mm -hmm. like constantly, how do we keep all, all three sides of those triangles as engaged as possible in this scenario? Um, so once we realized, I'd say, I think it was like May 7th, 2020, that I woke up and thought, oh, this is going to last to like September 2021. Um, so we need to start thinking a bit more long-term than these like live from home and we're doing some shows in the end of summer. Um, and so the first program that we came up with was um, Hacking the Sues program. And we were inspired by the Shaw Festival who did something similar. Um, we are so grateful for the Sues at the Arts Club. It's how we've managed to keep uh, many of our staff, though not all of our staff employed, uh, but you can't use the Canadian emergency wage subsidy for freelance artists. Uh, and so we created 20 full-time permanent positions 
that were called ECOS artists, so um, education and community outreach specialists. And those artists created digital content for us, um, some of it artistic, a lot of it educational. They did a lot of workshops. Um, they also connected with our donors. Uh, and it was definitely like, that was last summer. It kind of felt like this weird fly by the seat of your pants digital summer camp where uh, we knew some of the artists, all of the artists, um, I think all of all the artists except one, I think were people who were supposed to work with us last summer. So we knew most of them, but some of them we knew quite well. And some the, that show they were going to do last summer was supposed to be their first show. So we were all a group of 20 artists plus us at Arts Club trying to get to know each other over Zoom calls, trying to make like breaking into teams and just kind of like guerrilla style going out and creating art and putting it on our online um, uh, windows. Um, the next thing we did was we wanted to focus, I think something at the Arts Club that we could do a lot better job at is being um, telling the story of what we do outside of the shows that we do much better. You know, and I think that's a product of we usually do 18 productions over three venues plus a tour with a not very large staff. So we are running from show to show to show uh, that we don't always necessarily take the time to talk about all the other activities that we do. Um, so we decided to have a festival called Dialed Up, a digital festival last year where we wanted to shine a light on other artists in Vancouver who we were fortunate enough to get to work with either through our silver commissions process or our emerging playwrights unit or our company in residence program or the Bill Millard Artist Fund, but all the different ways that what I call professional community engagement, how we're trying to make the arts club a place where artists, the artists can connect with outside of employment or above and beyond of employment. It's maybe a place where they get, where they go to work, but also that there it's a place where they can gain some professional development or community access. Um, so that was the next program we did. Then uh, through the summer, we were, I know it's just like constant. Then through the well, I was just going to say, you just talked about something that I think twigs into um, a broader picture. Um, um, when you talked about telling the stories about what we do and how uh, you, your assessment was that not everyone really understood what was going on in, inside. And I, I'm, I, I'm going to hook this to something that I have discovered during this time that we've been shut down, is that the community in general has very, and I'm being very general, has very little awareness of what we do and how we do it. And I'm going to link it to our current... Um, discussions that we've been having with public health about our businesses and how we function. And it, 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 what we have discovered is that they have very little knowledge of how we do um, serve our artists or work with our artists or, and how we do connect with our audiences. So it's interesting to me that you've actually kind of hit on something that I think is something the arts in general does not necessarily do a good job of. Yeah. And um, I, and it's, again, it's like, it's because it's because usually I think our resources are pretty stretched pretty thin. And so to take the moment to be like, well, what story do we need to tell better? What narrative about us do we need to be sharing instead of the two for one tickets or opening night in a week or, you know, those kind of um, in many ways, like sales, sales driven narrative. Well, well, yeah, because we've been I mean, you talk about doing 18 shows a year. That's a lot of production. Yeah. That, that doesn't. And you do a tours. So, yeah. So you're constantly generating um, uh, interesting, 
exciting programming, mm -hmm. but it doesn't give you a lot of time to do that other piece. Yeah. Which I think maybe a lot of us are actually discovering during COVID I is that we've been, we, because we've been funded to produce work. Yeah. And then we need to produce so much to raise money. Yes. <laughs> that we kind of haven't had a lot of time to sit back and, and, and consider. Yeah. So I think that's what I'm hearing you say. <laughs> yeah, and we, we, we refer to it as all of our mission-based work at the Arts Clubs, whether it's our education um, activities or it's this professional community engagement activities. Um, that is something that we that we've that we knew before the pandemic was an issue, but knowing it was an issue, but still not having time to deal with it. And well, so turning the ship or yeah, whatever. Yeah. So that's actually we were having a a a strategy that one of our strategic plan meetings yesterday and we were saying like what we have right now is time so how are we better using that time to tell those stories um and and yeah because it's definitely it's 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 been existential through the pandemic when when we i know you're in the same boat donna when we realized that not everyone understands like you know, in this case, like how our business model works or how we have set, we, we, we are a business, just that period. It's interesting to see um, that there's a gap in knowledge there. And so, you know, what I was going to say that we did this fall was we, at that point, we were allowed to have gatherings of 50. So just like Fire Hall, we decided to have some small programming and so we did, we chose to do one person shows because we really wanted to prioritize safety in terms of our artists. And I know that there are shows with like two people that are farther away from each other on stage and like th that's possible, but we thought, let's just look at it from um, this one particular lens, you know, uh, virtuosic solo performance. Uh, but we also were like, what's gonna happen if someone has a runny nose, you know, and like the show must go on mentality is, has just been part of what theater is for centuries. Decades, yeah. <laughs> and, and like, how do we change that? And, and, and the show can't go on if you have a runny nose. Um, so we decided to hire for each one person show, we cast two actors. And so then each actor had their own stage manager and their own crew. So they were like our own version of the NHL bubble. And there was a director that went, like would spend the morning with one team and then the afternoon with the other team. So in rehearsals, there was that crossover, but in performance, they were hermetically sealed bubbles that were not allowed to like, we we're like, don't hang out, you know, on your spare time. We want you guys to be apart from each other. And so there was, we were lucky. We didn't, you know, have any major COVID um, brushes, but there was a point in the second show where one of our actor's sons had a runny nose. And so we could say to that team, stay home, you know, the stay home. They did some Zoom rehearsals uh, and the other team could carry on. So it would, if that had happened in performances, the same thing, presumably, we never had that happen, but it could have happened. It also meant- Well, and we very seldom have ever had the occasion to be able to have understudies. I, exactly. I mean, we might have a swing who's doing one part oh in a gosh. musical, but- I know if every, if every part had an understudy, how wonderful, but like how, how do you make that work from a financial perspective? Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was our solution. And it also meant that then we could do two shows a night. Like we could have a five o'clock show and an eight o'clock show. Uh, and one actor would do one and the other actor would do the other. 
Um, so and we we ran for six and a half weeks. Like we we really went for it. We wanted to give as much employment to artists as possible. We wanted to have as many people come as possible. And in the end, we like we overshot a bit. Like we had, I think, forty two hundred seats available, and um, each show maybe two thousand people, or just under two thousand of those seats were sold. You know, seventeen. But don't forget, at that time, everyone was also hearing that you know things aren't safe, so don't go out. I mean, totally. so it's it, it might have been a totally different experience. Totally. Had had that not been in play. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, when we were planning it, we just decided to. To, to, to take the risk and like, and that's been, this year has been trying to balance being prudent and taking the risks at all with the idea of getting us through this time and getting us through is getting artists through, getting staff through and getting audiences still connected to this habit of going to see live theater. So we did that. We had, you know, followed crazily strict safety protocols. We were an all mask all the time place before BC was an all mask all the time place. Um, and the responses that we got, because we we survey each of our audience members, the responses that we got in general were like, well, across the board, where we feel safer at the arts club than we do at the grocery store. They were all quite positive responses. The only negative responses we got were like a handful that felt that it was too sanitary, which is like, fair enough, you know, like, well, I yeah. miss those days too when I hugged people in the <laughs> lobby at the theater. Um, but- I remember having to teach a man how to put a, wear his mask when he came in, because he came to the lobby and he went, I said, you can't come in unless you have a mask on. And he went, well, it'll steam up my glasses. Yeah. So I'm kind of going, okay, well, this is how you actually yeah, you do push it. it up, pull the glasses down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. I think about that all the time too. So I'm curious about how you uh, replenish your energy and your, I mean, you're juggling a lot and you've given us a chance to hear some of that. So you're juggling all this stuff. I know you have a dog called Mabel. Yes, yes. I know. If this, <laughs> so if what, this is, what a... does Ashley do when she's not juggling everything uh, to kind of just take a pause? Um, well, I do have my little dog who I'm looking at right now. And so if this wasn't a podcast, but a video, I'd show her. She's just right beside me sleeping away. Um, she is an infinite source of joy for me. Um, so, yeah, I would say that... This year, it's been a lot of walks with her, a lot of um, audiobooks and podcasts, uh, which was an inspiration for um, this year. Since we haven't been able to do shows at the Arts Club, we've done audio plays. So we have a, a listen to this series for world premieres of plays. And we're about to launch um, something called This Is Something Else, which is uh, it, investigative podcast in the history of the Arts Club in Vancouver Theatre. Um, so those were inspired by my downtimes as I listened to other podcasts, other investigative podcasts or audiobooks. Um, I like, I think probably this pandemic has taught me to, to take those times to go for walks. <laughs> um, <laughs> Not much else to do. Yeah, right. Um, but then like, like what I was also thinking, like, is that a lesson I'm going to carry forward? I don't know, because when I'm going for walks now is when I would have been at like the different, like the job is still so busy, as you know, too. Like I was yeah. late for this meeting, like, like all day, every day, trying to figure out how the arts club is going to get through this is packed. But then what's different is we don't have the the dress rehearsals to go to, the tech rehearsals to go to, the shows, the the um, 
fundraisers, those things don't exist. So my job has has opened up evenings and weekends in a way that it never has. And I'd love to say that that's a work-life balance that I'm going to carry forward. But I think once we start doing shows again, you know, I, I think I might lose some of the lessons I've learned. But yeah, in terms of replenishing, I think, yeah, dogs and walks, you know, but, but I also have, have always just kind of been the personality type that gets replenished by doing the work, you know? Well, I, I know for me, it's like if I'm sitting in the theater and the audience is uh, uh, breathing with the show, mm -hmm. breathing with the actors into the show or dance, whichever I, wherever I am, whether it's here at the fire hall or somewhere else, that's how I get re-energized. So it was really a hard time to not ever have, not those have those sources because I don't get that same buzz. Well, maybe occasionally I get that same buzz from a pod, uh, not a podcast, a stream performance. Yeah. But I, it's different. I know. Like there's something different about that. Yeah, I, I totally it's agree. Like that's... Connectivity, I think, is it's something about connectivity that we do that 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 I know you don't want to talk about. We don't. Well, the PHO, the Dr. Bonnie Henry probably doesn't want us to talk about connectivity that happens in a space. But that is the beauty of live performance. You, you, you're there with everybody and you're connecting in a strange way. You may never talk to the person that's two meters away from you yeah. in, in a live performance as we do them now or we will do them again, mm -hmm. but you connect with them somehow. Yeah, and, that's and, that, the shared yeah. experience and the, yeah. the, that using your imagination collectively and individually that... Yeah, that has definitely been a like a way I replenish. So I have missed that, and I find the same. I don't I don't often get the same buzz from streaming. And I watch, you know, everyone who sends me their stream things. I do my best to watch all of them. Uh, we're streaming things. Like I understand why as a as a sector we've pivoted that way. But we also all could have chosen to go into you know film and television as creators. And I mean, some people definitely do both, but there's a difference in live performance. I would say one small way, this is again, connected to dog that I get um, replenished is that Mabel and I take agility classes and oh. that is allowed during the pandemic. Uh, and Mabel is- What is an agility it's, class? It's basically super dogs, you know, like- Okay. okay. <laughs> I mean, so she jumps through hoops? She jumps through she? hoops and goes through tunnels. <laughs> she is not yet a super dog, but she's pretty darn talented. I'm a pretty, pretty- pretty proud mom um do you have to do those things with her you just see right you it's actually you know you run along beside them and you're using your hands and things to gesture where they go to next because the course right. is not usually like unlike super dogs where it's like pretty laid out the real courses are a bit more of a puzzle uh and so usually if we make a mistake it's because i haven't gestured the right way it's not because of her she's she is more talented at agility than i am but but you know like that's they have of course now with this new pho they've uh, the group classes have been canceled because they're um like they're, they're they're looked at as exercise classes um but that's the one thing i've been doing I, I i get all of my groceries delivered like i'm quite locked down i'm like don't see humans but once a week i see two other dog owners and their dogs and we're all like 20 feet away from each other the whole time but seeing people in real life it's i talk to people over zoom over phone 10 hours a day five days a week but it's very different actually seeing people in real life and I can't wait until we're out of this mess and able to do that, whether it's at the theater or whether it's at an agility course. Uh, I now I'm that. going to ask you, cause you referred to it, you referred to yourself as a mom yes. to, to Mabel. Yes. So you've just announced some very exciting news. Yeah. Uh, so congratulations. And uh, I'm 
delighted that we're going to have another th- theater baby. Yes. Uh, um, having had two myself yeah. at one point. Um, uh, well, they're still around, yeah. but just not babies. <laughs> yes, fair. Though <laughs> maybe sometimes you still see them as your babies. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it, it, that's a big choice. I mean, I think it's an exciting choice. Do you want to talk sure, about that? Sure, yeah, better? sure, yeah. So I... Um, I'm just, I'm almost 23 weeks pregnant. I didn't tell anyone for quite, or not anyone. I told like, you know, some very close friends and my parents, but I didn't tell a larger community until last week. Um, And that's because I went through IVF. And so uh, IVF has a lot of like ups and downs and I just wanted to get it farther along in this journey to feel more secure, to share, share with people. Um, but I am knock on wood feeling more secure. Um, Great. But yes, it's, I, it's a big decision. I'm, um, I just turned 42 this weekend. I've always wanted to be a mom. I always thought I would be a mom with another person. I always thought I would never do fertility treatments and I would never be a single mom. And then I ended up doing fertility treatments and I'm going to be a single mom. Um, but, uh, yeah, I just realized I, well, I've always known that that's been something that I've wanted to do. And so now I'm very excited about being a mom and very scared about being a single mom. Uh, but definitely do feel like the love from the theater community. Um, uh, and I know that my little, my little person is going to have an amazing community to grow up in. So. Well, just speaking from experience, I know uh, having had two children, uh, uh, twins, during uh, the time when I was starting working at the fire hall, uh, it, it is very challenging. But yes, you're absolutely right. There's nothing like the love of a theater family. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's, they, the children learn so much from the people because they're around really intelligent, curious, uh, funny yes. individuals. Um, and... It's, it'll be fine. It, I mean, you'll be pulling your hair out at times. Yeah. <laughs> you'll be super exhausted. Yeah. But on the other side of it, you know, all you have to do is look at that child and your heart just goes. Oh. Yeah. Well, when I, I mean, just turning my head to look at my dog, I feel that way. So I can't even imagine <laughs> what this little person, how this little person is going to make me feel. But yeah, so, so that's, it's a big life change. I think, it, you know, um, it would have been, um, maybe even like it's different than if 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 the pandemic hadn't happened and we were doing 18 shows then all of a sudden I had a child but this year we're like I was trying to say earlier we're like I am not running to the theater every night and every weekend and then we're gonna have to slowly build back like we don't think of the arts club the next year we're back to 18 shows we think we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna get there eventually but we got to slowly build back that also hopefully provides an opportunity for me to figure out how to balance this new part of my life as well, I hope. but. And do you think that, I mean, I kind of don't think, this isn't quite what you said, but do you think the pandemic actually made you think more about, I've got to do this now? Well, you know, what actually happened was I started the IVF journey. I'm, I'm very happy to talk about the ins and outs of this because I think a lot of people don't talk about IVF for many reasons. Um, and I want to put myself out there as a resource for people who are interested in it. Um, I thought that what I was doing was um, putting some embryos in the freezer for the future, just in case I didn't meet someone. Uh, and so last, or two, two Novembers ago, I was directing Cost of Living and then Sound of Music, and they were actually overlapped. It was like a crazy busy time where, you know, op- the, the preview week of Cost of Living melted into the first rehearsal week of Sound of Music. 
And that was when I was doing the beginning of the IVF process, which is when you take all the hormones and then they, um, what they call heart, they call it harvesting, they harvest your eggs. and my thought then was was totally like in a couple of years, if it hasn't happened, then or if I meet someone and I'm too old and then I have this as kind of this next plan. But what ended up happening was I only ended up um, having one viable embryo at the end of the whole time. And I had actually thought there was there's a point in the IVF process where um, your embryo can be um, checked uh for a complete set of chromosomes. Um, And that's because oftentimes when people have miscarriages, which is so common, it's because there isn't a a complete set of chromosomes. So they can check that before they put the embryo inside of you. Uh, And the chance that the embryo isn't viable at that point is pretty high. So when I only had one embryo and it was going to get tested, I thought, I'm, this isn't this isn't work Better out. Do this now. Well, well, I, I, like what I thought was this this little embryo isn't going to. I'm going to find out that this embryo isn't viable, and I was never so sad as I was in my life. Like so deeply sad. And when I found out that the little embryo was viable, my plans of like, well, he'll live in the future, or he or she will live, you know, in the freezer for the future, maybe, totally changed. And so went to like, I need to do this now. Like. Um, I want to be a mom. I thought that maybe like I thought started this process as sort of like, uh, oh, and it's maybe a plan B. I've now realized that that was quite naive. Uh, and I have this opportunity that perhaps this little miracle could work. And so that was last or that was two Decembers ago. So it was just prior to the pandemic, actually. Mm. So I had made that decision then and was trying to, um, it's very long story, this whole year of the different tests and the things that went right and things that went wrong and trying to like get my body in the place to um, receive this, receive this lovely little embryo. Uh, When the pandemic started, everything had to stop for several months. Uh, And, and then when the clinics and everything opened up again, I could, could carry on. But yeah, I, I had made that decision just, just prior to the pandemic that, uh, that it, it wasn't a future plan B. It was a like, let's do this now. I really want it. And uh, when I thought that I almost, after starting the journey, thought that it like I wasn't even going to get to the embryo phase, uh, it was it was I was deeply sad. Which is, you know, and then there has been a bunch of ups and downs in the journey since then. But I think that's also one of the reasons why I was so like private with the knowledge about being pregnant until 23 weeks and now like flip the switch and like ready to talk about all the details if people are curious because I because I you know the more the more I've told people that I did IVF the more I hear from people oh I did it too or oh I'm curious about that I wish I know more more about it so yeah I want to make myself a resource to chat with people about the experience if it's helpful were, to them. Were you concerned and um, uh, that people uh, would judge you or uh, uh, go, well, she shouldn't be doing that. She's running a theater company. And I'm being provocative. I really yeah. am trying to be provocative oh. because I think the whole thing about women running things yes. is often questioned by the fact that, oh, well, we have children or we might have children. I totally was worried about that. I'm still worried about that, you know, um, not worried that I would like stop myself from doing it. Uh, um, I think, yeah, like I think a pattern in my life is like when I decide I want to do something, then I'm just like, yeah, do it. Yeah. And, and you know, but the thing is, a lot of that time, a lot of those things that I've decided I want to do are very personal. And this is pers- obviously very personal, but the effect of having a child, like you and I were saying, is this child has to have a community. And so it's a good lesson for me also to be like, um, 
the 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 both like the the individual determined nature of myself and also how lucky I am that I've ended up working in this field that's all about community and support uh, for each other. Um, but yes, I've totally I'm I'm I I don't. I was very nervous to tell the board. I was very nervous to tell the staff. I'm nervous to tell people because I I know some people might feel that way. And in the end, that's not been any of the feedback I've gotten from anyone at all. Like people are, everyone that I was most worried about telling is like the most joy filled about this knowledge. So I hope I hope the world is changing, but, but I know like, you know, this little person is gonna have a different kind of upbringing than I had because um, they will have one parent who has a very busy full-time job that, um, so he is going to be in daycare, which is different than my experience. And, um, I'm trying to figure out just how to, like, A, how to get into a daycare. Well, you take it a day. Yeah, yeah, yeah you should be registered. Yeah. You should probably be registering yes, now. <laughs> I, that's what I did last weekend and it's terrifying. It's very scary. Um, but yeah, but, but, you know, I, I, well, there are ways to get through it. You can have someone come in to be in your home when the child is young. Yes. You can get there's a way to there's a way through it. You just have to take it a step at a time. I'm happy to give advice. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> but I know you have a busy schedule, so I'm going to ask you a couple sure. more questions, and then we're probably going to have to wrap it up. But uh, maybe we can get together and talk about this at sure, another time. Sure, I'd appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so one of the things we do on this uh, this little podcast that we do is we always ask people what a dramatic pause means to them. Yeah, I think like in my recent experience, it's been like, I have something to tell you, dot, dot, dot. I'm pregnant. <laughs> I think that's been like a recent dramatic pause. And how, how long have those pauses <laughs> yeah, been? I guess depending should, on who yeah, you're totally, talking to. Stretch it out to make it as as big of a pause as possible. I mean, when, you know, when you're directing, it's never a pause, right? The pause is filled. It's filled with like the yeah. possibility of what the person's going to say or the possibility of what the other person's thinking or where the plot is going to take us in the next, the next corner. So I think that's probably a good metaphor to remember right now. Well, we're in this pandemic dramatic pause for our organization. It's not dead it's not air. not dead air. Yeah. There's a pause is not so dead air. much expectation <laughs> and change. Um, yeah. You know, that, that pause is the place where you can, you can you use the word of 2020, pivot or carry forward. So yeah, that's, that's a good, I hadn't thought about that before, but you're, you're right. Like the way we think about it as artists is the way to think about it in this like grander scheme. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think so. Uh, and the other question I always ask my guests is if uh, they got that huge grant or if someone said, okay, you have a lot of money, what would you do with it? Well, if I, if I win the lotto, which I don't play the lotto that much, but sometimes I do when it's really big. Um, my fantasies are always about all the different arts organizations and social justice organizations that I want to donate to. That's like so the Ashley Corcoran the Foundation. Ashley Corcoran Foundation, which would give a lot to 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 arts and culture and to social justice. And then personally, just pulling it back to the baby, I would just be less worried about it because I could hire a full-time nanny and pay that person really well and you know give them the best employment experience possible and not be running around and putting myself on as many daycare lists as possible. So yeah, I would still, well, I mean, whatever. I would still do this job. I always think that when I when I look, think about, oh, if I won that money, that'd be so great to set up that foundation. And also I, I like, I, I don't, I, I, I obviously appreciate being paid and need to be paid, but the, the, 
that's not where the drive, that's not where my work ethic comes from. I love, love my job. And, you know, when I was saying earlier that it's like winning the lotto, like I still feel that way, even though this year has been, um, really challenging and really unexpected for all of us. I know how lucky and fortunate I am to have the specific job I have. It's like the, the type of job I have, but at the theater company in the city I'm in, I feel so, so grateful. Thanks, Ashley. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening to Dramatic Pause today. Dramatic Pause launched in the third month of the pandemic, and since then we have been speaking with artists about their COVID experiences and their love of the arts. At this time, over a year into the pandemic, countless numbers of artists, creative workers, arts administrators, arts marketers, and production teams are unemployed and feeling the impacts economically and emotionally of this shutdown. The impacts on small and large communities, both rural and urban, has been immeasurable and will be felt for years to come. At the fire hall, we have a COVID safety protocol in place, which will increase when we are allowed to welcome audiences back into the theater. Until that time, please stay safe and don't forget us. We are here waiting to reconnect in a face-to-face, -face, two meter apart, masked manner. Dramatic Pause is made possible through the support of the Canada Council for the Arts, the Department of Canadian Heritage, BC Arts Council, the City of Vancouver, and the fire hall's many individual supporters. If you have feedback or questions from this podcast, please direct it to firehall at firehallartcenter.ca and we will respond as soon as possible. Thanks. Dramatic Pause is recorded at the Firehall Art Centre in downtown Eastside, Vancouver. It is presented by our artistic producer Donna Spencer and produced by technical director Alastair Wallace. The Firehall Art Centre has been producing and presenting Canadian theatre and dance since 1982, and we couldn't do this without the help of our generous sponsors, benefactors and patrons. If you'd like to support Canadian theatre and artists by becoming a donor, you can visit our website www.firehallartcentre.ca. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those held by the Firehall Art Centre, its employees or its supporting bodies. Thank you.